Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We are going to look together at the Word of God beginning in uh, verse 42 of Matthew 24. And I'd invite you to stand with me as we read together the Word of God. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and prudent slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and sign and assign him a place with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth the word of the lord please stay standing as we pray and raise your hands to god for his blessing on the word father this is your word the words of your son the words inspired by the holy spirit for matthew to record for us and now i ask that they may come to us not as my words, but it's the very word of God with the power of the Spirit bringing conviction into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. We are looking together at the, the Olivet Discourse. It continues on into chapter 25 of Matthew. Jesus continuing to speak in private to his disciples of the events that lie ahead in their lifetime and in the lifetime of those they will teach to whom they will deliver the word of God. Um, And Jesus says to his disciples at this point, after speaking of all the events that will take place before his coming, the coming of the Son of Man, which he has spoken of, he says, all right, now I want you all to stay awake, for you don't know the day which your Lord is coming on. You don't know it. You're, you're unaware, and you need to be aware that when I come, it will be at a time that you don't expect, an hour when you don't think you will. And this is the way these kinds of things normally happen. The irrevocable losses of life come at you, even if you're looking at them, they come at you as a surprise. You're caught unawares. You may know that they're coming, and yet the day they arrive, you go, whoa. I remember nine years ago when I got a call. I was driving over by, um, over by Airline Street in Toledo. I don't remember where I'd been or what early in the morning, but I got a call from Cheryl, and I could hear that she was crying a little bit. And I thought, ah. Oh. I know what it is. It's my mother. She died in the night. You don't expect it, but you you get the word. Some of you have had these moments in your life. You've had the moment that comes. You may have been expecting it, but when it arrives, it's a blow. And it was, for all the expectation, still unexpected. Jesus is saying here, it's going to be a day that's going to change everything. A day that is an irrevocable day. You can't undo it. Everything is different at the conclusion of this day. And that, that is the day of my return. It's going to come when you're not expecting it. And so you need to be watchful. You need to be expecting. And you see the kind of tension there is there that he says, be watchful, be aware. Be on guard. You don't know the day when I'm coming. 
be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you don't think he will. And so you don't think he will, but he's going to come. And he says, it's going to be an hour when you don't think he will, but you need to be ready. And it's almost a contradiction. It's a, what we call, it's one of those, well, if you're a communist, you'd call it a dialectic. Two opposed things in the tension of which you live. And uh, that's what we have here from Christ. And it's often what we have in scripture, these opposed truths that it will come when you're not expecting it, but you need to be ready. And in that tension, we live. Now, Jesus has gone from Jerusalem where he spent the day. This is Tuesday of the last week of his life. He dies on Friday. He's gone from Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives. A conversation which began in the temple with his warning the people that their, their city, their, their future is going to be destroyed continues on the way out of Jerusalem and it eventually ends up here in a private conversation with the disciples. Disciples on leaving Jerusalem, they've heard Jesus say, look, this is coming to an end and they, he's, they look at the temple, which if you've seen it, you know is an immense kind of unbelievable edifice with not just the temple itself, which is gone, but the foundations which we have still today being there and, and being the kind of thing you think, oh man, how could this be done? And so they, they're looking at him and they're pointing it out and he says, yeah, yeah, no, it is going to end and it will be destroyed. It will, all of this, not one stone left on another, he says. It's the first surprise. That's the first unexpected end. Foretold, warned about, but... No one's expecting the Spanish Inquisition, are they? <laughs> right, guys? Yeah, you guys, you have, you've wasted your youth. You, none of you have listened to Monty Python, right? <laughs> no one's expecting the Spanish Inquisition when it comes knocking on your door. <laughs> no one expects it, and no one's aware it's coming, and then it arrives, and you go, that's the kind of thing that Jesus' return is. No one's expecting it, but it comes, and it comes. So Jesus and his disciples have reached the Mount of Olives. They're alone. They're not surrounded by others. Jesus is speaking to them. And he tells them all this discourse, everything in this chapter and the next chapter that we've been looking at so far and that we will look at in weeks to come, and all these things are going to take place before his return or at the time of his return. And so Jesus warns his return will be sudden, that people are going to be caught unaware, that many will perish who should have been ready, that the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. Now, what were the days of Noah? Well, the days of Noah were like other days in the Old Testament when there was a prophet, Noah, a preacher of righteousness in a dark and unrighteous age. Bible tells us he was a preacher of righteousness and that he condemned the world by building the ark. Therefore, what we understand about Noah is that he was, he was preaching righteousness, that he was saying God is coming in wrath because he condemned the world by building the ark. And so by building the ark, he's saying, hey guys, the wrath of God is imminent. It's coming. And people were going around their business. They were doing this and that and the other. They were getting married. And not a person on earth listened to Noah. There wasn't a single person outside his family that believed his message. So Jesus says, it's going to be just like then. When I come, there's not going to be people expecting it. There may be a few. Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, in Luke he says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Well, what will faith look like at the return of Jesus? When it looked like the faith of Noah, being ready, being set apart, being different from the world, anticipating the return of Jesus. And so will you be ready? Turning from Noah, Jesus says to his disciples, therefore, stay awake. And he goes on to say of his coming, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. 
It's not a pleasant analogy, nor is it one that you would think Jesus would use of himself. I'm coming like a thief in the night. Now, there is a difference in English common law and in American jurisprudence and established precedent that's still maintained in some states between burglary and theft. Burglary is something that takes place in the past. It was something that took place at night. It's to come into an occupied place and to steal. It's to come into a place where people are, are secure and to render it insecure by coming to, to steal. Burglary was viewed as a more serious crime. There's remnants of this still found in law. If you go in and you do your crime in a place where people are in a number of states, it has a, a more serious penalty. Jesus says, I am coming like a thief in the night. In the night, when, when people are in bed, when there's supposed to be security, Burglary is punished more severely than theft because it's cloaked in darkness. It violates the security of a home. It takes place when people are sleeping and vulnerable. And Jesus says, I'll return like a thief in the night. When you're in the security of your home and life, when you think everything is safe, when the world and your world is shrouded in darkness, Meaning no warning, no, no anticipation, no ability to look out and see the actual coming. Where you live, surrounded by your children, while you're sleeping and your family is vulnerable, then he will come like a thief in the night. Nor does this warning have only as its only negative connotation uh, the surprise of Jesus' return. It's not just that he's coming as a surprise, but there are negative consequences, like a thief in the night. For those who are caught by surprise, it's loss, dismay, darkness, and death. And all this while you feel secure, all this while you're asleep, all this while you're not anticipating it. In this analogy, Jesus is the thief, the one who's coming. He's the one who's supposed to be feared. He's the one doing the taking. And it's a strange way to describe himself, but of course it's his way and it's not inaccurate. The threat to your life and mine posed by the return of Jesus is real. The warning to the disciples in this parable, the lesson of the parable, and we're told it's a parable in Luke. It doesn't say it's a parable here, but we would recognize it even if Luke didn't say it. The warning comes in the person of the head of the house. Jesus says, if the head of the house had known when the thief was coming, he'd have remained awake and been prepared. He is the head, after all, the one charged with care of the family, the one responsible, the protector. The children should be able to sleep in security because their father's there. The mother, she should be able to, to rest confidently after working hard all day, caring for the family because now at night her husband's at her side. But by this parable, he's not, he's not watching, he's sleeping, he's derelict, he's selfish, he's unconcerned. This, of course, is a, is a parable to leaders, as is the second parable as well. It's a warning to leaders, and it's a warning to you about your leaders. It's a warning to leaders, and it's a warning to those who are led. It's a warning to those who are led in that they put their lives in the trust of and in the care of leaders. By the husband you marry, women, you determine your future. By the leadership you embrace, members of a church, you determine the consequences for your life. And it's a warning for leaders. It'd be one thing to sleep as a father, a husband, a head of the home, 
if you had no prior warning, no cause to care, no reason to be watchful, then you might sleep and you might sleep soundly and you might say, hey, I didn't have any warning. I didn't know, nothing foretold this. But if you're told that the thief is coming, that he is certainly one day going to arrive and that at night and that when he comes, he'll bring destruction on all who are caught unprepared, all who are not caught ready and awake, all who are not cognizant of the warning that had been previously provided. Well then, in the face of that warning, that sure word that the thief is coming, to be asleep is to be cavalier. It's to act criminally in your disregard for your position of authority and responsibility. Yet even in light of this cavalier disregard for the warning, the real shame that's borne by the head of the house who sleeps despite the prior warning when the destroyer arrives is the lack of care for his household, the lack of concern for his children, the failure to protect his wife. He is the watchman who was called to keep watch who didn't. He is the dog, the watchdog that didn't bark because he was busy eating the steak. He is the sentry who's asleep and so his company is slaughtered because he's been caring about himself. It's interesting to notice that Jesus doesn't say anything here about the wife. Nor does he say anything about the children and their need to be prepared. He could have. He could have told a different parable. He could have told a parable that called for children to be awake and aware. He could have told a parable about a child who was warned about the dangers of the road and how if you go out on the road, you could get run over by a cart, a horse-drawn cart, and you have to be careful and you have to look both ways before crossing the road. But this heedless child ran out into the road and people called out and said, child, stop. The child didn't listen. He was caught unprepared, run over and killed. But a good lesson. Kind of story you might tell your children one day to warn them about their actions, but Jesus doesn't tell that story. He doesn't tell the, ch the children to keep watch, nor the wife. But he speaks to the oikos despotes, which is the Greek word, house, oikos, despotes, despot. Well, this is amateur Greek, but it means the ruler of the house. You've heard of a despot. It has a negative connotation today, but back in Jesus' time, the oikos despotes was not a negative thing. It was the, the head of the house. Oikos, head. Uh, oikos is house. It's where we get our word economy, the way we run a house. And despotes, leader. Jesus is speaking to, to you who are leaders of households. And to you who are leaders of the house of God. Perhaps more to those who are leaders of the house of God than to any others. He warns the head of the house of the danger. His cavalier disregard for warnings poses to himself and to his entire house because he has neglected to keep watch and be prepared. Now, how many of you as fathers could say that you have kept watch over your house in such a manner that if Jesus returned tonight, you'd be ready and you'd be happy. How many of you leaders of a church, elders, pastors, could say, as Paul said, I have no one's blood on my hands. I have gone day by day from house to house, with teaching and tears, speaking to you the truth of God. Actually, I think that if we had fathers who lived like this and pastors and elders who lived like this, we'd say, man, get a grip. <laughs> you take things too seriously. Calm down, you know? Hey, he hasn't come for 2,000 years. It may be another 2,000. Don't live like this. You're going to tire us all out. We're going to need to find another place to go to church if you're going to continue to put such a heavy burden on us that we have to be this prepared. 
At this point, Luke tells this story and he adds a very interesting fact that's not found here in Matthew. Luke tells us that between the parable of the thief in the night, all right, the one we've just talked about some, and the next parable, the parable of the slave who's left in charge of the household, the steward, which is a slave in charge of a household, Peter looks at Jesus. No doubt Peter's startled. No doubt Peter's not liking what he's heard. And so he says to Jesus, Lord, how many of you know what Jesus, Peter says at this point? It's not a, something that you remember. But Jesus says, Lord, or Peter says to Jesus, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? All right? Otherwise, the stories are identical, but Luke includes this question by Peter. Lord, you speaking to us or everyone? You speaking to me? Really? You know, uh, or are you just saying this generally to everyone? And so Jesus responds with the second parable, which in addition to emphasizing the lesson of his first parable, answers Peter's question, Lord, who are you talking to now? You don't mean me, do you? You don't mean us. You really don't. You're not talking about us being asleep when the thief comes, are you? Calvin says of this exchange between Peter and Jesus, Peter's question, Jesus' response. He says, for the disciples, as we have formerly seen, were always in the habit of thinking that they were unjustly treated by Jesus unless they were exempted from the common lot. In other words, unless they were treated as special and different and greatly excelled all others. Unless Jesus says, you're not like the rest and you're far better, they are in the habit of thinking they're unjustly treated, Calvin says. So when our Lord now presents to them a condition which is far from being pleasant or desirable, they look around them on every hand, like people astonished. What? You saying this to me? What? Really? Come on, Jesus. But the object of Christ's reply is to show that if each of the common people ought to watch, how much less ought it to be endured? In other words, how much less should it be expected that the apostles should be asleep? If the common people are expected to be awake, then the apostles better be awake. Now, note that Peter is the one who's objecting. Peter, two nights from this, Thursday night, this is Tuesday night, two nights from this, Jesus will take Peter with him into the Garden of Gethsemane, asking him to accompany him while he goes there to pray after the Last Supper on the night that he is betrayed. On this very hillside, on the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives, two nights from now, Peter will sleep when Jesus has asked him to accompany him and keep watch. Peter will nod off. This fearless protector who says he'll permit nothing to happen to Jesus will be catching some winks at the very hour Christ is betrayed. And Christ in that night will come to him three times and say, keep watch, wake up. And each time, Peter will not. He will not watch and pray as Jesus asks, but he will be asleep. There's no question here that, that Christ is speaking to leaders. At this point, it's very clear that this is not a charge to the general public, to the average Christian, but that in his parable, the second parable, Jesus is aiming directly at leaders. Now, both are for leaders. But in different ways. In, in the first, Jesus addresses leaders in regard to their duty to those led. He says to you fathers, elders, pastors, people are relying on you. You must stay awake. But in the second, Jesus addresses leaders, fathers, pastors, elders, deacons. And 
in some respects, mothers as well, because that's true leadership. But he doesn't address leaders about their responsibility to those under them, those they lead. In the second parable, he speaks to leaders about their responsibility to the one who has called them to lead and who has granted them their authority and who they serve under as an under-shepherd. So if the first one was the leader looking down, the second one is the leader looking up. The first one is your duty to your children, to your wife, to your family, to your church. The second one is your duty to the one who gave you this position, all right? Now, obviously, this lesson begins with the apostles. It's to all leaders, but it begins with those who are at the very highest level, those men who have the the foundations of the gates of heaven and the foundations. Which one is the apostles and which one is the 12 tribes? I can't remember. The gates are named after one. The foundation is named. Foundations are named after the other. They have the foundations of the gates of heaven named after them. These are the most illustrious leaders. And Jesus warns them. Jesus comes straight at them in this parable. Today, this parable is most of all to those of us who are pastors. Secondarily, let me say, it's also to you today in the pastors you follow, in the things you look for in your leaders. Most of all to pastors, okay? There is a a flip side to it that is all of you. But it's also to leaders who are fathers, it's to, and that would be to women who you marry. It's to elders, it's who you place yourself under, the church where you put yourself under the authority of men called to be elders. So it's to pastors, fathers, elders, leaders. And it's also to those of you who are called to follow leaders. Now, when I say it's most of all to pastors and elders, I'm not diminishing the importance of father or mother or of deacons. But there's something we have have to recognize. What does Peter want this passage, these words of Jesus? What does he want them? Or where does he want them to apply? What he wants is, he wants these to be general words. He wants them to apply to everyone. You're speaking to everyone, right, Jesus? You know, it's not, you're not specifically talking to me. And so the, our desire is going to be to say, ah, oh, this is just a, a generic warning. It's general and for everyone. And it's not a specific warning to me. But Jesus has made it dead obvious here that those of us in leadership are the ones most implicated in this parable. The master has left Peter in charge. And the parable, the duty that the the master puts into the hands of this slave who's the steward is to feed the other slaves at the proper time. He's called to feed the other slaves at the proper time. Who then is the faithful and prudent slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Now, when Peter has failed and denied Jesus three times, after Jesus has found him sleeping, there's more defection. He later that night denies Jesus three times. Jesus rises from the grave. The disciples realize he has risen. He tells them to meet him up in Galilee. So they go north. 
Jesus isn't immediately there, so the disciples go out at night, go fishing. It's what they've done. It's kind of, I, I suspect, their stress relief. They go out in the boat and they fish all night. They're looking for Jesus. They haven't found him. They go out fishing and they don't catch anything. And then as daybreak comes, there's a man on the shore and he has a little fire going and he calls out to them, lay down your nets on the other side of the boat. And they respond, hey, we fished all night and we haven't caught a thing. But, you know, we'll do it. I don't recognize it's Jesus at this point. And so they throw their nets over on the other side of the boat, which is absolutely nonsensical as a means of catching fish, one side of the boat versus the other, you know. But they do it, and they find the nets absolutely full to, to breaking from fish. Peter looks at the fish, he looks at the shore, and he realizes that the guy on the shore is Jesus. And he says, it's the Lord. And he throws his cloak off and he jumps into the water and he swims to the shore where Jesus has prepared a breakfast for them. And while Peter is there with Jesus on the shore, Jesus takes him aside and in private he asks him, Peter, son of Jonas, Bar-Jonas, do you love me? Peter answers, Lord, you know I love you. This happens three times. Three times, Peter, do you love me? Three times, Peter answers, Lord, you know I love you. But of course, you know what Jesus says to him after each time that Peter responds, you know I love you. Jesus says to Peter, then feed my sheep. Then feed my sheep. Then feed my sheep. There is no higher calling, there's no greater glory than being given the job by God of feeding the flock of Christ. And this is done by preaching the word of God. By believing the word of God. By applying the word of God. The word of God, Jesus is the word, is true bread and true wine. Peter is reminded by Jesus three times of this parable. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. It is the duty of Christian leaders, pastors, elders, teachers, fathers. Above all, the duty of Christian leaders to feed the flock of Christ. There are two points in this parable. The first is that the shepherd who faithfully feeds the flock will receive a great reward on the master's return. The slave who is found watching and waiting, faithfully feeding, who has been put in charge by the master and who's found faithful at his return, Jesus says, will receive a great reward. The master will say to him, ah, you have proven wise and prudent. You have fed the servants. You have not looked after your own desires, but you have done what I ask. Therefore, the master will put him in charge of all his possessions. It is glorious, powerful, and wonderful to be called to serve the Son of God, the King of Kings, as a leader under him in his church. And there will be reward in heaven. The master will place those who serve faithfully in charge of all his possessions. It's a reward beyond comprehension. It, it beggars the understanding to grasp this kind of reward that God will say, everything I have is yours. I put it in your care. All the master owns, not earthly, heavenly. But there is this dire warning connected to this call. But if that evil slave says in his heart, 
my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and to eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The slave who's found faithfully teaching, feeding the other slaves, faithfully serving, receives great reward. But as James, the brother of Jesus, writes in his epistle, the one who is called to teach and who then falls into sin and betrays the truth or teaches something other than the truth is far more culpable and more severely judged than the non-teacher, even if they commit the same sin. So James writes, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that those of us who teach will be judged with much greater strictness. Feeding, of course, is teaching. Feeding the flock is teaching God's words to his people. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here. Those who teach receive great respect in this life and great reward if they're faithful in the life to come. But there's a danger Jesus speaks of here, and that is that in the absence of the master, in his extended absence, the slave who is called to feed the other slaves, the slave who has been made an overseer in his master's absence, that slave will come to think better of himself, to think that he's above the other slaves, and thus to act presumptuously. So he begins to beat the other slaves and eats and drinks with drunkards. Obviously, this is allegory. The teacher who abuses those Jesus has entrusted to him does not necessarily do so by beating physically. Rarely is it a physical beating, but metaphorically, he abuses and heaps harm on those entrusted to his care. He neglects those entrusted to his care and consorts with sinful men by departing from the faithful feeding of the flock through the word of God that he is called to. He begins to think of himself as better. He's like the pigs in George Orwell's animal farm. The leaders of that utopian farm, the teachers of that community who proclaim equality, we're all equal, but the pigs are what? More equal. We're just a little more equal. We're all equal. But I'm just a little more equal. And so the pigs abuse the other barnyard animals. And the slaves who are given the job of teaching and feeding start to think they're of a different sort than the flock. And that they're just a little better they aren't quite like the rest but better and it's not true Peter proves it pastors apostles preachers teachers in the kingdom of God are sinners like other men they are not inherently more holy their calling does not convey an exalted moral status In fact, the most wicked, depraved, and evil men on earth are those who take the calling of Christ and use it for their own purposes and glory. Nothing is worse, nothing more evil than to be a Judas who takes the things of God and betrays the God who called him. And Judas is joined in his betrayal of Christ by countless pastors and elders and teachers today and always. Men who take the calling of Christ and forget that they are just slaves, but come to think that they're really much more like their master than like the slaves that they're called to feed. So I speak to you as leaders, but I also speak to those of you who are, who are under leadership and who have a 
a choice in the matter. You need to be aware of the sins of your teachers and your pastors, your leaders, and not be gullible. Now, it is the desire of pastors to appear to appear impeccable. Impeccable means very well put together, right? To appear impeccable. There's actually a technical meaning to impeccable. It's from the Latin, which means impeccator, which is sin, unable to sin. And every, every meeting of pastors I go to, it's like, we're not like other men, the attitude of the pastors. No, we don't do things. Don't call my integrity into question. Don't say that I would ever do anything wrong. People in my church do that. But I am a man of sterling character, impeccable. The only way that illusion of impeccability can be sustained is by the man not knowing the flock and them not knowing him, him being august and distant. Not known, but up there on a pedestal where you can't smell the smell that comes from him, where you can't see the character of the man. It's the only way preacherly impeccability gets a hold of a congregation. But I have gone to congregation after congregation, been part of them, where they view their pastor as impeccable. He's a holy man, and he's not. He is a sinner just as they are. And so if you have leaders who pretend that they are impeccable, that they are not like you, that they don't ever look at porn, that they don't ever lie, that they don't ever do these things, then you need to call the bluff of that man and say, no, (laughs) if Peter and Paul were the chief of sinners, you're no better than them. You need to ask yourself, of your leaders. Is this man faithfully feeding the flock or is he actually building his own kingdom? Is he feeding the flock of Christ or is he actually out there like this guy in this parable building his own kingdom coming to think that this is really his kingdom and his estate and his vineyard and all the things that Jesus says in all the parables about those who reject God and think that they're in control? Is this a man who thinks that he is building his own kingdom? Is this a man who's working to establish his own name? How can you tell? It's obvious. Those, this sort of leader, those who beat their fellow servants, fall in a number of ways, but they're always the same. They don't give the food, they drink it down themselves. They love the things of this world, in other words. They love money. They love money. The Bible expects you to be able to understand a man who loves money. Tells you not to put into leadership a greedy man. How many of you know whether a man loves money or not? And if you say, well, that's a hard one to judge, David, that's subjective. Then I say to you, oh, come on. Then everything's subjective. You know who loves money. He wants money. He speaks about money. He thinks about money. He's not generous. You know who loves money, don't you? In your heart of hearts, you can say, you can make, if you can't say it about others, it's because you won't say it of yourself. It's the only way you don't know who loves money is because you're not willing to say, I love money. And therefore, you walk around like a blind man, wrong blind man, you know. I don't know, I don't know, I don't think there's any love of money here. Yeah, well, that's because it's the air you breathe, it's the the water you swim in yourself, and therefore you don't recognize that you're in water. There is a love of money. They love the things that God has given them for their own pleasures. Now, let me say to you, the dialectic here, there's... To oppose things, the Bible says, do not constrain the ox when he's working. The Bible says that the one who teaches the gospel should be paid. This is not cause not to pay your pastor. And I praise God that you've been very generous to me. 
I have no qualms on that account, but you need to have qualms with your leaders. Do they love money? Not a, a reason not to pay them, but a reason to say, does this person live for money? Is there a love of money? And if your leaders will not give up money to serve God, then they are not the ones who found the pearl of great price. They are not the ones who found the treasure hidden in the field. They do not know the treasure or the pearl because they like money more than those things. Second, you can tell this kind of a leader by their abuse of their fellow servants in a second way. First is their love of money. The second is their love of of illicit sex. They love the women of their church, or sadly today, others of their church. And so sexual immorality in the leadership of the church is so far beyond contempt and so wicked that it almost can't be described. The servants who say, Jesus, but they're really preaching themselves and they're wanting gratification of their lusts. And it's everywhere today. Everywhere. If your pastor can't be happy in his marriage to the wife of his youth. If your pastor is unfaithful. If your pastor is hooked on porn. Either he goes or you go. There is no excuse for the church allowing men who have demonstrated their inability to keep from feeding on the flock from pastoral office. No excuse at all. Now there's a third thing, a third way of abusing the flock that's Really, probably, I think the worst of all, and it's men who, who do not want money and who may be faithful sexually. But they begin to teach falsehood. They start feeding you wood chips rather than food. You need to understand that the false teacher is a wolf who dresses like a shepherd because he wants to look like the real thing. And here's the thing you need to realize about false shepherds today. It's not like the days of the Inquisition. It's not like the days of the Catholic Church with John Huss. It's not like that time when the Catholic Church was putting people to death. They did it. They actually did kill people who were good Christians. The Catholic Church, during the Reformation, would send killers they trained killers in france to go and they gave them papal dispensations to go to graduates of calvin seminary and to put them to death in their sleep they actually hired killers to go and kill men in their beds that's not going on today is it that does not mean that the, the abuse is not real in some respects the kindness a big brother and animal farm is worse than just the outright hatred of the less sophisticated opponents of your life and your righteousness in the church. And so here is the thing to be on watch for today. It's a leader who forgets that he's serving a master in his teaching. He is a leader who may well speak of the term servant leadership and say, I want to be a servant leader. I want to be a servant leader. 
acting as though by being, quote unquote, a servant leader, he's actually following the steps, the pattern of Jesus Christ, who said, I came to serve, and who calls his disciples to wash the feet of the flock. And you might say, well, that's a good thing. I have a servant leader. And if that's what your leader does, that is good. But the thing that needs to be realized is that that servant leader still has a master. And that servant leader is not to make himself the glorious one, the merciful one, the kind one, but to make his master in his mercy and glory and kindness visible to the flock. That means that this servant is not permitted to dispense mercy to the sinners in the flock the way the master can. It's not his flock. He is not allowed to say, oh, don't worry about what you've done the way the master can. That's not being a servant leader as Christ was. This leader must not pretend that he is the master so that you love him rather than love the master. He is to speak the hard things, the hard truths, the things that make you run to the master because you need the master's mercy. It is the master's mercy that you need, the master's love. The master's forgiveness. It doesn't matter what I say. You must find the master through my feeding you. And if I lead you to myself, then I am a destroyer. And the church in America is led by destroyers. Who preach a Jesus who's really just like them. Kind and Instead of preaching a holy Jesus who will return one day, and when he returns, if you're not ready, he will throw you outside with the hypocrites where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I can't do anything for you but tell you to seek Jesus and to be prepared because he's going to come back. And he will ask for an accounting from you. And he will say, have you served me? This is the kind of leadership that God requires. Parents, there's lessons all over this for you. You want to be loved. Don't make it your goal to be loved so much that Jesus is not feared. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the lessons that are in it. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we will learn from these parables as leaders and followers and that you will protect us from the evil of false shepherds and bad leaders. Father, may we lead with holiness, with fear of God, recognizing that the Son of Man is going to return one day and preparing faithfully the flock to receive him when he comes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.